Back in the early 3rd century AD, Romans, who wanted to get credit for the afterlife, wiping away some of the sins they committed while living so they didn't have to do as much penance after death, which was a core belief of Christianity as practiced at the time, would seek out what was called a libelli from someone who had credibility within the church. And this libelli was basically just a signed statement, a reference, that indicated the person bearing it was in good standing, had done some penance while living already, and thus should not have to do full penance after death. Usually, the issuer of these spiritual references were confessors or martyrs or other such holy people. And these same sorts of letters could be issued to people who had, in the eyes of the Christian church, betrayed the church by worshipping some other god or adhering to some non-Christian practice. Those who strayed from the flock, as it were, would have to perform a sort of living penance. And that period could likewise be shortened with the proper libelli, though the rules on this changed In the early 6th century, the punishments were substantially watered down, ostensibly to make it easier for those who had strayed to come back into the flock. And penances were standardized when a handbook of different acceptable punishments for different misdeeds was issued to Christian confessors, whereas previously they had kind of just used their best judgment case by case. A few hundred years later, a previously niche penance that was noted as an option in these handbooks had become quite a bit more common. The confessors divvying out these punishments for various misdeeds could issue what was originally called a tariff penance in place of other sorts of punishments like self-mortification or temporary exile. So folks could pay a sum of money to the church and that would lessen their sentence and in some cases do away with the sentence entirely, depending on the amount of money given and the sin in question. This tariff penance option evolved by the 10th century into a system in which most penances were at least partially paid with money, though that payment was often paired with the prescription of holy pilgrimages and doing what amounted to unpaid labor for the church. Over the course of the next century, this system expanded to not just help ameliorate punishment in the living world for those who did bad things and wanted to get back in good standing with the church, but also punishments that would ostensibly be levied in the afterlife, similar to what those libelli were meant to deal with back in the day. So you could make a pilgrimage, do some work for the church, and make a payment to the church in order to wipe some sins from your slate, so that when you died and arrived at the pearly gates to be judged, you'd stand a better chance of getting into heaven, or, bare minimum, would spend less time in purgatory waiting to be allowed into heaven. Other mechanisms of sin erasing were introduced at various points in the Christian church's history. 
There was a period that began with a declaration from then-Pope Urban II, during which anyone who participated in a crusade declared by the church would have all of their sins wiped clean, which seemed like a pretty good deal to some people. By the early 13th century, such sin-forgiveness options, which had become known as indulgences, became a pretty popular thing to both get and distribute. Church attendees would ask for indulgences left and right, for everything from going to Mass at the proper church to saying their favorite prayer. The term kind of lost its meaning for a while, because parishioners would just ask their priests for indulgences willy-nilly, almost like asking for a blessing or asking a celebrity for an autograph, and they would get them just as often. People were being forgiven for all sorts of things, no questions asked, day in and day out. Later that same century, though, things had gotten so kooky, with all this indulgence granting, that the church felt it was necessary to rein things in a bit. Their hand was forced in this regard, to some degree, as they had gotten word that some of their priests had been abusing the indulgence-giving powers the church granted them, asking for gobs of money, ostensibly in the form of tariffs, but a lot of it often ending up in those priests' pockets. So the Catholic Church leadership outlined new rules on how indulgences could be granted, how frequently, and for what. Scams and scandals continued to emerge from the very concept of indulgences, though, and some church-affiliated people grew rich and powerful by giving their parishioners permission to do all sorts of sinful things so long as they paid for it later. This system of indulgences was one of the prime catalysts for the Protestant Reformation. The Christian church was basically just one church until the early 16th century when this Reformation, and then a counter-Reformation, took place. In 1517, the Pope handed out indulgences to Christians who gave the church money to fund the rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And the frantic marketing efforts surrounding this effort, which resulted in what amounted to advertisements distributed by the church, flying out in every direction, promising the forgiveness of sins for the low, low price of whatever people could afford to give toward this rebuilding effort. And all that promotion nudged a priest and philosopher named Martin Luther to write a work called the 95 Theses, which was basically just a list of things he thought were wrong with the church, including a great deal of corruption that revolved around the selling of sin forgiveness in the form of indulgences. The movement he started by publishing that work resulted in the splintering of the church into all the denominations we have today, and it eventually led to a substantial reconfiguring of the indulgence system, first by disallowing the purchase of indulgences with money, then by foisting the responsibility of issuing them onto the Holy Inquisition, then by separating the concept of indulgences and the quantification of punishments and forgiveness. You could still have your sins indulged, in a way, but not in the sense of being granted two fewer years in purgatory, or an hour less time doing penance. It became a more free-form, open-concept sort of thing, rather than a product 
to be exchanged or bought or sold. What I'd like to talk about today is a more modern concept that is often compared to the system of indulgences, but which many people have argued is a necessary intermediary step to helping us get to where we need to be as a planet. Carbon offsets. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the New York Times, and it's entitled, Wildfires Are Ravaging Forests Set Aside to Soak Up Greenhouse Gases. A carbon offset can be one of many types of carbon-absorbing mechanisms that are utilized to offset the emission of carbon, often by governments or corporations, but also sometimes by individuals engaging in high-emission activities. In practice, that might mean an oil company that's churning a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere and selling a product that will result in even more emissions when consumers burn that product for energy. They might buy carbon offsets so they can say, yes, we're emitting X amount of CO2, but we've bought X amount of carbon offsets. So the net balance of CO2 going into the atmosphere because of our business activities is theoretically at least zero. It might also mean a government that wants to hit net zero emissions sooner rather than later, paying for the same sort of CO2 absorbing activities to take place, giving them the same type of offset credit for emission management purposes. And in some cases, if you buy a flight from London to LA, you'll be able to either directly from the airline or through a third-party service compute how much CO2 emissions resulted from your portion of that flight and pay to offset it, again, by funding a carbon-absorbing activity alongside the carbon-emitting activity that you're engaging in, the flight. Whatever the scale, there are quite a few carbon-offsetting options these days, though most of them revolve around either funding new renewable energy infrastructure, like solar panels or wind turbine farms, containing the methane that's generated from landfills or livestock, and in some cases destroying that methane as well. Some offset activities involve funding energy-efficient building upgrades or the replacement of heating and other such building infrastructure with more energy-efficient options. And some such efforts are oriented around plant life and either covering agricultural land with plants that aren't necessarily profitable unto themselves, but which soak up a lot more carbon and store it in the soil than soybeans or corn or typical agricultural plants. And this can be done on cropland, but a version of it can also be done in forests and similar ecosystems, typically not by planting new plants, but instead by maintaining what's already there so not allowing the trees in a particular forest to be harvested for lumber or the other plant life to be cleared away for agricultural or building purposes. California's Contemporary Carbon Offset Program, which took its current form in 2013 
after not quite a decade of trying out other variations of the model, is one of the largest in the world and has allowed the state to cover quite a lot of ground on the path toward its climate goals over the course of its relatively short existence. The state wanted to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions to 1990 levels by 2020, and it was able to achieve this goal by 2016. Next, it wants to get down to 40% below 1990 levels by 2030, 80% below 1990 levels by 2050, and it wants to have reached 100% fossil fuel-free energy generation and 100% economy-wide carbon neutrality by 2045. California's carbon offset program is linked to Quebec's offset program through what's called the Western Climate Initiative, and this program includes what's called a cap-and-trade system, which means the government sets a cap on how much carbon can be emitted in each sector in aggregate, which puts a ceiling on that type of emission growth for individual entities within these sectors but then those entities can buy or sell emission permission, basically. If I'm a car company that is able to reduce my emissions by making more electric vehicles or by using more renewable-generated electricity in my manufacturing process, there's a chance I can then sell the additional carbon credits that I no longer need, the distance between what I'm using and that cap, to a competitor who has not made the same green investments that I have. This cap-and-trade approach is favored by many because it's a market-based solution to the quandary of how to get market-guided entities to make environmentally friendly choices, giving them a profitable reason to do so. And many of them will tend to make these investments without requiring any additional regulation or legislation when such schemes are put into place. Some companies operating within such capped systems go out of their way to buy up carbon offsets because it allows them to stay under that government-established ceiling, but it's also increasingly a good public relations move. When Microsoft announces that they're planning to be carbon negative, removing more carbon from the atmosphere than they put into the atmosphere each year by 2030, that's a pretty good PR win. They seem, by many people's estimations, to be on the right side of history and it may give them a leg up both in terms of what they're investing in for the future, but also in terms of hiring, brand perception, and so on. The way carbon neutrality, and in some cases carbon negativity, are being pursued and accomplished today, though, via such programs, is far from ideal in the eyes of some sustainability experts. Part of the reason goes back to the concept of Catholic indulgences, Big, wealthy companies can essentially spend their way to ostensible greenification without changing much or anything about the way they do business, how they make their products, and the amount of emissions they're releasing into the atmosphere, but also the amount of pollution that they're putting into the environment. And they can do all this by purchasing carbon offsets. And although in theory, those offsets do offset those emissions and other bad behaviors, First, they never claim to reduce pollution or the amount of single-use plastic, among other similar things being put into the environment. But second, even the emission drawdown potential is not always what it seems to be. Looping back around to that Times piece, some of the forests not being logged or otherwise destroyed, the owner selling that non-destruction as a carbon offset, 
have now been burned, meaning that offset is no longer an offset. The trees that were meant to keep growing continuing to absorb CO2 over the course of their hopefully long lives became emitters of CO2 instead as they burned. So those purchased offsets were no longer offsetting anything. They were doing the opposite, in fact. And this is just one of the many, many wildfires that have been burning for the better part of 2021 around the world. It's unclear at this point what happens regulatorily when purchased carbon offsets burn up and become the opposite. And the insurance mechanisms some of these systems have put into place have already proven to be woefully incapable of covering the same quantity of offsets that are being burned. But whatever the spreadsheets say and the legality of the issue, the environmental outcome is the same. More CO2 in the atmosphere. And the company having invested in that path toward carbon neutrality, rather than investing in some other path that might have been more resilient and made more of a long-term difference, is now getting credit for greenifying, while actually only really having spent money on the ability to say that they've greenified, even as these forests burn. Now, in the eyes of some, that assessment is unfair. After all, this is a market-based solution to a problem that isn't intended to be the end of the line. It's simply meant to be a less heavy-handed means of beginning a segue toward carbon neutrality and then eventually a carbon zero or ideally carbon negative economy. The former being a system in which all emitted carbon is offset in some way, and the latter being a system in which we're no longer emitting such things or in which we are pulling down more than we're emitting, respectively. Those latter two cases are considered to be ideal, but we've built so much of the modern world around energy generated by greenhouse gas-emitting substances that it will likely take a while to pivot even if we were to go full throttle. And the theory is that we will suffer less as a species during the transitional period if we do what we can under our current circumstances to ameliorate the worst of our emissions while also relatively slowly, but also surely, swapping infrastructure out for cleaner versions of the same. There are good arguments to be made for both approaches and many other grayscale options on the spectrum between the two extremes. But the practical reality we face at the moment is that carbon offset-based approaches are vulnerable to things like wildfires, and in some cases incentivize bad behavior as well, including behavior that is in opposition to the spirit of what is intended by these offsets. There are reports, for instance, that people who had no intention of cutting down their forests for lumber or for cropland are being paid by these programs to not cut down those trees. They are now claiming that they were going to, but they weren't going to. So they are essentially being paid to do what they were doing anyway, money being handed by these programs to people who just happen to own the right type of land. There are also reports of mismanagement of the spaces being set aside for these sorts of programs. Misallocation of funds meant to be divvied out to people who are behaving properly according to the intended goals of these programs. And folks who are greenwashing their operations 
by purchasing cheap carbon offset credits that may or may not be moving things in the right direction, but which allow a heavily emitting entity to achieve the veneer of sustainability, which in some cases may get them off the hook for other sins, a secular climate-related indulgence. The biggest carbon market in the world right now is in the European Union, which is making it more expensive to emit, but which also has a carbon credit trading scheme that allows some flexibility during this transition phase, while also introducing the aforementioned incentives into the market. Most markets currently are more like the majority of the U.S. market, though, meaning they are primarily voluntary with some incentives for those who choose to pursue them, alongside the goodwill and PR opportunities afforded by purchasing offsets. But the caps are not severe, and there are no punishments in most areas for not sticking to a government-set ceiling on emissions. That's pretty much how the UK works as well, alongside the loose collection of regional markets scattered around the world. The primary argument in favor of this type of market is that they nudge emitting entities toward more sustainable behavior by providing financial incentives for doing so, while also providing advantages to cleaner, less emitting companies. The electric vehicle company Tesla, for instance, earns hundreds of millions of dollars each year by selling their emissions credits to other car companies that produce more emissions that they need to offset. And these programs do this while also helping to fund clean, renewable infrastructure through the revenue generated by selling carbon credits into that market. So it's basically taking something that was happening anyway and charging for it, charging for carbon emissions, and using the money from those sales to invest in solar panels and wind turbines and battery storage and better insulation on buildings. The idea is that over time, this will pay for itself, and emission ceilings can be brought lower and lower and lower until eventually emissions are not allowed at all, and people have to pay for everything that they emit, and at that point it will barely take any effort to get rid of the final bits of polluting infrastructure, getting down to carbon zero and then hopefully a carbon-negative future all without too much punishment or authoritarian moves on the part of the world's governments. The primary argument against this sort of system, though, is that it locks in a lot of the sorts of behavior we're trying to disincentivize by providing an indulgence-style way out, which allows those who can afford to pay a means of cleansing themselves of their sins, while other entities that cannot afford the same are punished and put at a disadvantage. The incentives all seem to be on one side of things then, granting big benefits to giant companies that can afford to keep operating as they always have, not suffering the temporary downsides of transition, until way later, and all the while, being able to claim sustainability-related superiority, despite their actions being quite different from those being taken by other companies that are actually investing in the transition, rather than just paying to be able to say that they're transitioning. According to that argument, then, although there are likely positives to carbon offset models, including cap-and-trade, in some ways they are worse than not doing anything. 
because such systems can conceal the ongoing negative stuff. Whereas, if it was all out in the open, with only actual steps in the right direction, actual transitions, and significant adjustments to behavior being counted as sustainability-favoring actions, we might see more of that type of actual movement and less paying to be perceived as an environmentally friendly corporate entity. Now, that is a highly debatable position. Again, there are legitimate arguments on both sides of this. But it's one way of looking at this collection of regulatory systems and offset mechanisms during a period in which some of them are literally going up in smoke, even as we continue to point at them as evidence of movement toward a goal that we're pursuing, but, according to the best and most recent data, on the matter at least, not pursuing as fast as we need to be if we want to avoid the worst possible consequences of human-amplified climate change. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Hype, How Scammers, Grifters, and Con Artists Are Taking Over the Internet and Why We're Following by Gabriel Bluestone. This is one of a collection of books that I've read recently about how even very intelligent, well-meaning, informed people can be scammed and misguided and can succumb to hype cycles, but also grifters and tribes that might want us to think or behave in a particular way, even ways that are against our personal best interest or the best interest of our societies. And this one focuses particularly on how this works on the internet, which I personally think is a very good thing to understand, especially now, because so much of our communication takes place on the internet, and even communication mechanisms that don't seem to be connected to that larger collection of variables and influences that pervade social media and email and such, they're all connected back to that same network in sometimes subtle ways if you trace the strings and strands back far enough. So I personally found this to be a useful read, it's got some good information, and if nothing else, it's a very good reminder that all of us can succumb to these types of influences, these types of hype cycles. Now if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Hype by Gabrielle Bluestone. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. And you can sign up to receive a daily email from me in which I curate and summarize the news at onesentencenews.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.